0: All right, men, let's get started. We're in uh, our study, as you know, of 1 Samuel. I hope, um, I know it was sent to you, but I hope you were able to look at that those notes and get a little bit of a familiarity with some of the things that are in those charts and so on. I might refer to them here and there. I drew something on the board, which I will refer to later when we get into the end of chapter 2, but uh, just review where we are um, the book of 1 Samuel is really, as you know, the foundation of the monarchy in Israel. <clears throat> However, it, the focus is really on three individuals, as the important story of the founding of the monarchy is told. The first is Samuel, followed by Saul, followed by David. And the study of Samuel is really where we are right now. As you know, his mother Hannah was barren, uh, her, his father Elkanah, uh, we learned that he was a very godly man, very focused on caring for the spiritual needs of his family. Would take his family every year to Shiloh. And again, on that one map on page four is where Shiloh is in the Ephraim land grant to the west, excuse me, to the east of where Alcana's family lives. So it was a fairly arduous journey for them to make to go to the tabernacle for sacrifices. And it was at one of those times where Hannah pours out her, her heart to the Lord and asks him for a son. And she makes a promise. Do you remember what that promise is? If you give me a son, I will give him back to you. I will dedicate him to you for the rest of his life. And she even states that he will take the Nazarite vow. And, and we'll talk a little bit about that later on but it's it's an extraordinary woman, and, as I mentioned last week, and to me, this is really important that's why I love to study this part of the Old Testament. Hannah illustrates how the law was supposed to work and she she exemplifies that, and we're going to see as we look into chapter two, the remarkable understanding of this woman's theology. So that kind of uh, summarizes where we were i I didn't remember. If I got to verse 21, it seems to me I didn't. No, but
1: that's, where we're going.
0: that's where I want to start. Okay, good. So that pretty much brings us up to, to speed if any of you weren't here last week or, or you just need a reminder. Verse 21. Then Alcana and his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. That's Leviticus chapter 1, 2, and 3. That's what's described there is what Elkanah is doing. But Hannah did not go up. For she said to her husband, as soon as, the Lord, as soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Now that's the language of the promise, the vow she made to God. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. In other words, may the Lord fulfill his promise to give you a son, which he has, and to bless him, which he will. So the woman remained, nursed her son until she weaned him. Typically in the ancient world, this is almost impossible to, to fathom this, complete weaning of a child was about six. Can you imagine that? Complete weaning of the child was about six, so or close to six when she brings him up to shadow. We'll talk about that. Later, Verse 24, and when she'd weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, an ephah is about three-fourths of a bushel, and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. Now, again, I want to spend a lot of time on this, but the animal, the flour, and the skin of wine are all associated with a burnt offering. That's in Leviticus 1 and, and so on. So that's all it's telling us. They, then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. Remember, we talked about that last week. And Eli saw her pointing out her heart to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord as long as he lives. Literally, as long as his soul lives, that's literally, nephesh there is the Hebrew word, he is lent to the Lord. This, that's the language of vow. That's the language of an oath. So she's fulfilling the promise that she made a number of years earlier. we're right, at he's six at this time, but a number of years earlier. And so she completes a vow to the Lord. Now she does something else, and that's what a, a part of chapter two is all about. It's a prayer. This prayer, I, I have studied this, I've studied this many times in in my life, but every time I did again on Monday, every time I study it, I just am astonished at this woman. And remember, we're not talking about a woman that would have studied at a seminary. There were no such things. This is not a woman who would have spent an enormous amount of time studying under a rabbi. There's no evidence that she did that. But it does apparently indicate that this is a family. And Elkanah, we already learned, was a very faithful man, faithful in carrying out his spiritual responsibilities for his family, taking his family to to Shiloh and so on. That she must have heard a Levite teach this. Because I want to, this chart, I'm going to talk about this a little bit later, but the priests, who are all of the tribe of Levites, had two responsibilities. They were to administer the sacrifices. That would occur at Shiloh, for example. But they were also to teach the law to the people. Now, to remember why this is important, you've got to go back to Joshua, if you can go back that far. But one of the things Joshua did after they conquered the land distributed all the land grants of the 12 tribes. He then established cities of refuge, and then he established Levite cities. There were 48 Levite cities, and they were peppered throughout the west side of the Jordan River and the east side of the Jordan River, because two and a half tribes lived on the east side. It's estimated, if you, I can't remember if we studied Joshua in here, but if we did, I would have given you a map of these Levitical cities. And when you look at them, no Jew, wherever they live, was was less than ten miles from the Levitical city, and that, that is one of the important purposes of the Levitical cities. So I'm telling you all this because it must in mean that Hannah went to these Levitical cities to hear the law taught to her. I would I would absolutely assume that Elkanah is doing it. But He's taking his family. So this is a woman who knew the law. This is a woman who knew about God. This is a woman who had, because of what she's about, we're about to study her prayer, her song. It's one of the most extraordinary passages in the Bible. This is a woman who really knew God and really understood who God is. And so I wanna study it with that in in mind, okay? Are, Are you with me? I'm trying to give you the background. This woman didn't just drop out of outer space. She is reflecting. How the Jew in the Old Testament was to function. The sacrificial system, knowing the law, understanding the law, and thereby knowing God. And she did. It's it's just a really wonderful part of the Old Testament. This woman epitomizes how everything was supposed to work. All right, now I've divided her sermon, chapter 2 now. We are assuming, and I think that's correct. She presented Samuel to Eli. uh, She dedicated him to the Lord, and so on. Now she's in the tabernacle. She's not in the holy of holies. She's in the holy, and she's praying. This is what she prays. My the first part in verses one and two is a a thanksgiving and praise to the Lord. Look look at these words. Look at this language. My heart exalts. In the Lord, and your translation should all have Lord in capitals. That's Yahweh, the great I am, the self sufficient, self existent God. My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength, literally the Hebrew is my horn, but that was always a metaphor for strength, is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Now, when the Bible uses the word heart, it's always a metaphor. It's not that organ in our chest that pumps our body, blood through our body. It's the center of our spiritual life, the center of our spiritual will. So she's choosing something to exalt in the Lord, her strength. her That's her physical, the strength, the horn, is her physical. So her spiritual and her physical is exalting in the Lord. What does the law say? You're to love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. She she illustrates that. The totality of her being exalts in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Now, to to, to a Jewish person in the first century, in in the ancient world, I should say, excuse me, in, in the ancient world, the salvation idea had two parts to it. Salvation in terms of deliverance from bondage to Egypt, which is what the Exodus is all about, but also salvation in terms of the personal sense of my deliverance from sin. And in the Old Testament economy of things, you understood God delivered you from sin through the sacrificial system. That's how God atones for your sin. So that's what she means by this. But would you notice something else? My mouth derides my enemies. Her enemies are the enemies of God because I rejoice in his salvation for me. So here's a woman who's praising the Lord with her entire being, her heart and her her physical strength. Then in verse 2 is one of the most important statements of ethical monotheism in the Old Testament. There is none holy like the Lord. There's none beside you. There's no rock like our God. She is not accepting the premise, well, our God is just one among many. That's not what she's saying. Or our God is the God we choose, but the Egyptians choose another God, and they're okay too. That's not what she's saying. There is none holy like our God. There's none beside you. There isn't any other God in the universe. And there's no rock. Rock is a a metaphor used all over the Old Testament for the solidness the stability, the certainty that goes with worshiping God. But you did notice something else? She uses a plural pronoun. She doesn't say there's no rock like my God. She says there's no rock like our God. Now men don't miss that. In my my Bible, I actually circled the pronoun our because she's acknowledging something. She's part of the covenant community. She's part of the covenant community of Israel. And that, that's, 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 that's validated by, that understanding is validated by how she talks about like our God. And so you, you, hear, you, you hear this read or you read it or even you hear it sung. Some people put it to music. You hear, here's a woman who really knew the Lord. And the the... The idea that you sometimes hear, well, these these people, you know, a thousand B, we're roughly at a thousand B.C., close to eleven 1, hundred B.C., well, these people are agricultural morons. They're illiterate. They don't know very much, so they just grab for a belief in some system that makes sense to them. That's a lie. That is not Hannah. She is literate. She is educated through the Levitical priests. And this is a woman that evidences remarkable theological understanding of God. Now, this is going to sound terrible. But I believe she has a greater understanding of who God is than many evangelicals who live in the United States today. I mean that. So many have a superficial, shallow understanding of God. Not Hannah. Hannah. Then, in verse three, she issues a warning, which is sort of remarkable, that she has the audacity to issue a warning, "Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your lot or your mouth, because the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. So, what she does in this warning is she acknowledges and stipulates two things. The heart of the human condition is pride. I don't need God. If I even think of him, he's like a fair-weather friend. When I'm in crisis, then I'll yell out to him, but I don't really need him. And there's this self-sufficient, self self-sufficient, selfish, self-centeredness that is part of the human condition. And she warns about pride and arrogance. Why? For two reasons. God, our Lord Yahweh, is a God Elohim of knowledge and by him actions are weighed. So what is she saying about God? Two things. God knows everything and we are accountable to him. By his actions, by him actions are weighed. And so there's that night. This woman is saying that God knows everything. So your arrogance and your pride will not go unnoticed by him because by him actions are weighed. We are accountable to him. Now, the beauty of the Israeli theology and the sacrificial system, of course, is that is how it enabled you to walk with the Lord, because he took care of your sin problems, through sacrifices, and so on. Now, here's a woman, I mean, men, again, just, if you ask many people today when they think about God, do you believe God is omniscient and he knows everything? Do you believe that you as a creature that he created are accountable to him? Most people would, well, now let me think about that. Let me modify that a little bit. Maybe he doesn't know everything because I'm a free agent and my freedom is really making him contingent on the decisions I make, which is a silly statement. I've heard people say that. So Hannah is displaying a remarkable theology. Don't you agree? 1100 BC, 3,100 years ago, here's a woman in Shiloh singing a song evidencing prayer vocalizing a prayer to God that reflects an in-depth understanding of God i would account on more time it's the levitical priest who were to teach the law she must have had a good priest in the levitical city she went to because she has a depth of understanding that i find remarkable Now, in verse 4 through verse 8, which is the longest part of of her song, of her prayer, she talks about and elaborates, by him actions are weighed. What do you mean, Hannah? The bows of the mighty are broken, the, the feeble bind on strength, those who have hired themselves out for bread but those who were hungry have eat, ceased to hunger. The barren have borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. God breaks the bows of the mighty, God holds accountable those who are hired out for bread and how they're treated because God takes care of the poor, takes care of those who are feeble. God takes care. He holds the proud accountable, those who exploit and oppress, and he takes care of those who are oppressed. And he blesses. The greatest evidence of blessing in the ancient world, I'm not sure that's true in our, in our world, but the greatest evidence of blessing in the ancient world was children. So the barren has borne seven children. Why would that be important to Hannah to stay that, say that? that God does bless even the barren who are faithful to him by giving them children because that's what happened. We're going to learn in just a little bit. Hannah will have six children. She had Samuel. She's going to have five more sign of God's blessing but she he she who has many children is forlorn <clears throat> again assuming she is one of the proud and then verse 6 another extraordinary theological statement <clears throat> the lord again that's yahweh the lord kills and brings to life he brings down to sheol which is sometimes translated the grave and raises up and listen, man, that raises up means the resurrection. Job 19 26, Isaiah 26 19, Psalm 22, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, all affirm that the Old Testament saint believed that God would resurrect people at the end of time. And that's what she's saying. So, what is she affirming? Not only in verse 3, second part. Not only is God omniscient, he's the God of knowledge. Not only does God hold accountable his creatures, God has total authority over life and death. And those, those who rebel against him, he sends to Sheol. Those who belong to him, he will resurrect. He will raise up at the end. This woman has a theological understanding that is absolutely astounding. She really gets it. she I, I'll say this is about the ninth time I've it, said it. She illustrates how the law was supposed to work. She illustrates how the system was supposed to work. However and whoever it was, these people are nameless, her Levitical priest, who, who, when she went to the Levitical city with her husband and so on, he must have been a good teacher because she really gets it. Are you with me? Okay, two of you are. I'm not sure where the rest of you are. All right. Continuing then. The Lord makes poor and makes rich, brings low and exalts, he raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the lords. On them he has set the world. Now, let's work our way backwards from verse nine, verse 8 up through the beginning of verse, uh, verse 7. Start with that last sentence. For the pillars of the earth are the lords, and on them he has set the world. <clears throat> That is, of course, it's figurative language. The the earth isn't resting on pillars, but it's figurative language that the Lord is the creator of all things and the sustainer of all things, because on them he set the world. He sustains what he's created. And so you have this, again, remarkable affirmation of who God is. He's omniscient. He knows all things. He holds people accountable. He is... He is the God who, who uh, has total authority over issues of life and death, even to the extent of resurrecting those who are, who are his at the end. And he's the creator, and he's the sovereign sustainer of everything he's created. And listen, part of that pillar on which his creation rests is there's not only a physical order to the universe that Isaac Newton discovered in the 1600s, but there's also a moral order to his universe. The universe that God created not only has physical order to it, there's a moral order to it. And if human beings choose to violate that moral order, there will be consequences to that, because that's how God made his world. And so she just illustrates that. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor. He lifts up the needy. They're the ones who will be exalted. Jesus put it this way. The meek shall inherit the earth. And all she's doing is summarizing not only the physical order of God's world that he created and sustains, but there's a moral order to it. She's elaborating a little bit upon that, that by him, he holds everybody accountable. He weighs actions. It matters how we live our life. I'm not hearing any amends, but I'm assuming you're with me. But I, no, honestly, I, I know I keep saying, but don't you find this extraordinary? That this seemingly insignificant woman from that tiny backwater town in the land of Ephraim is saying this. <laughs> she absolutely illustrates how the old Testament system was supposed to work. Then she concludes verse nine and verse 10 are, are statements of quite remarkable, confident faith of this woman, the confident faith of a woman. This isn't a man speaking. this isn't a future king speaking. This is a woman. Once we're done with these chapters, we're never going to hear of her again. She never comes up again. But she's forever, ever cemented into our minds because of her prayer here, her song. Let's read this. Verse 9 and 10, I've called the confident faith of Hannah. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness for by might shall, for not by might shall a man prevail the adversaries of the lord shall be broken to pieces against them he will thunder in heaven the lord will judge the ends of the earth he will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his messiah his messiah ESV, which is the translation I'm reading from, translates that anointed. But the Hebrew is messiah, English messiah. This is the first time this is used in the Bible. And it comes from the mouth of a woman. This obscure woman from a backwater town in the land grant of Ephraim. Notice her language. This confident faith. God's going to make everything right. He's going to make everything everything perfect. He's going to hold all of those who have violated his moral order. He will call them to account. He will judge the ends of the earth, give strength to his king, and exalt the power of his messiah. His messiah. I met this is 1100 B.C. Isaiah won't come on the scene for another 350 years. Jeremiah won't come on the scene for another 500 years almost. Habakkuk for another 550 years. Here is a woman making prophetic statements about God's plan. He will judge the ends of the earth. The prophets keep talking about God is going to judge. God at the end is going to judge everything. God at the end is going to make everything right. She's saying in 1100 BC, before most of the prophets even show up. And she's the first one in the Bible to use the word Messiah. Again, I keep saying this, but this is an astonishing woman who had a deep understanding of God, a deep understanding of theology, and a deep understanding of what faith and trust in God looks like. We can learn a lot from studying Hannah. She is one of my favorite people in the Bible. And once we're done with this chapter, she'll be mentioned one more time when she makes a visit up to Samuel. But we're done. We won't hear about Hannah anymore which is sort of sad, but it's wonderful that we hear about her woman of faith, a woman who understood the system and saw God work graciously in her life. And she exalts him with one of the great theological statements in the Bible. Got it. Hey, Jim next week is defend this proposition using the prayer. Hannah, is a remarkable example of faith and trust in a sovereign god. 200 words.
1: UKJ, hey I have a question. Yes, sir. In the at the end of chapter 10 when or verse 10 when she says and he will give strength to his king is that also referring to the messiah or is that referring to an actual king like Saul or David? <clears throat>
0: Well, again, uh, that's really a good question. And I don't know if I can confidently ask that, answer that. But I think she did understand because the law, Deuteronomy 17, for example, talks about the king that Israel will have and the requirements God has for the king. So at least, Joel, she has in mind a physical king that will rule Israel because that was part of, of the plan and that is in the law. But that she uses messiah it raises the question, did she have an understanding that there would come from the king a Messiah? I'm, I'm, I'm a little troubled to go that far because the kings of Israel were called the anointed of God and that word Messiah was used of them. Of David, we will see, for example, later in our, our study of 1 Samuel. So I'm going to suggest, although I wouldn't die for this, that she is thinking only of a physical king of Israel. When she uses the word king, I don't think she's saying or nor does she completely understand that this is referring to Messiah Jesus who will save Israel from their sin. Does that answer your question? Yeah, understood. Thanks. Yeah, it's it's a hard judgment call, but that's kind of where I'm at on that. Boy, I'm open to changing it. She is one of those women, and I mean this, she is one of those women. When we get to heaven, I'm going to sit, I'm going to take her to coffee, and I want to sit down and talk to her. I really do. I want to find out more about this woman. She's one of the more remarkable people of the Bible. Okay, everybody with me? Anybody online? You have any questions or anything? Nope. All right. Keep Hannah in your mind, and don't don't forget her for a while. You will eventually, but forget her. Verse 11, just a little st- brief statement of God's blessing, the Elkanah went home to Ramah, that's their home, going going west, right on the edge of the Ephraim land grant, and the boy, which would mean Samuel, ministered to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Again, if we're right, uh, and there is a lot of discussion about this you know, among the expositors, if he was six years old when she took him, Hannah took him up to Shiloh and, and gave him Uh, to the Lord for for Eli to mentor and so on. Then right away, because the term there, correctly ESV has translated it, boy. This is not an adult. This is child. So he's already started. When it says minister to the Lord in the presence of Eli, we're not sure what that means. We're going to learn a little later on. He changed the showbread. He, he He would change the incense. These were some of the things that he was probably doing. But he's already serving the Lord. All right, now, Hannah, her son, Samuel, faithful, loyal, doing what the Lord wants them to do. Now, the author contrasts them with the two sons of Eli. This is, in hermeneutics. this is called the principle of interchange. What the Bible is doing is you have a righteous individual loyal to God, and you have an unrighteous in this case, two individuals and you are to compare and contrast them. It's called the principle of interchange. You are to compare and contrast them. And it's very easy to do that because right out of the shoot in verse 12, what do we learn? Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. That's not a very nice thing to say, but it, I'm getting loud here. So pardon me. That's not a very nice thing to say. The reason is the next sentence. They did not know the Lord. Now, just take that sentence. It's a declaration. Take that declaration compared to what we just read. And what was the role these two boys had? They're priests. They are part of that line that started with Aaron and goes through a bunch of people to Eli and now they're his boy. They are Aaronic priests who are to teach the people of the law and administer the sacrifices. The Bible says they're worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Now, the word for know there, it, it, it isn't a, a Hebrew word that means no facts about. It means they did not intimately know the Lord. That's what it means. It doesn't mean they didn't understand who God was and understand the commands. Good night, they were priests. They didn't have a personal relationship with living God. And we're going to learn, we're going to learn here in, in this section that goes through the re, almost the rest of the chapter what worthless really means. There are going to be two things that I want you to observe about Eli's two boys. Verse 13, now going to explain what that means. They did not know the Lord. They didn't have a relationship with the Lord. It was the custom of the priest with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant, these were individuals that served and helped the priest in the sacrificial system, that's what that means, would come While the meat was boiling, with a three-pronged fork in his hand, would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and all all that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest servants would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give me for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. Let me stop there. You have to go back to Leviticus, and that's a little hard, but you have to go back to Leviticus and read. Because what was supposed to happen was with the burnt offering and then with the subsequent sweet savor offerings like the peace offering. The burnt offering, the entire sacrifice was consumed on the altar. But in the sweet savor sacrifices like the peace offering. Only a little bit of the offering was consumed by the fire on the altar. The fat. And then what was left was the well-done steak meat. I made that up. That's not in the Bible. And then that would be given to the Lord and given to the priests. But what are the two boys of Eli doing? As soon as the sacrifice was laid on the altar, the servant would grab the prongs and take it so that the priest, Hophni and Phineas, would get the entire sacrifice. And they would go home and have a bar- barbecue. I mean, you know, you know what? A good juicy steak, you want some fat. That has to add to the flavor. That's what they're doing. They're taking what rightfully belongs to God. That is an abomination. These are priests who are not sacrificing to, let me rephrase that, not administering the sacrifices to God. They are taking the sacrifices for themselves. That's why verse 17 makes this statement. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. This belongs to the Lord that he then shares. They're taking it for themselves. Secondly, Samuel was ministering before the Lord. Here's the principle of interchange. We're now back to Samuel. Samuel was ministering before the Lord. A boy clothed in linen ephod. That's like like the, the simple apron or tunic he wore over his chest. We'll say more about that later. And his mother used to make him a little robe and take it each year when she went with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. And Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife, saying, The Lord give you children by this woman For the petition she asks of the Lord, so then they were return to his home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the young man Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Just a little aside, we see the depth of God's blessing. He gave Hannah six children. Samuel, three more sons and two daughters. Principle of interchange. You see the wickedness of the sons of Eli, the righteousness, the obedience of Samuel, of Elkanah, of Hannah, and the Lord's blessing. That little phrase at the end of verse 21 and the young man, Samuel, grew in the presence of the Lord is almost identical to what is used of Jesus in Luke chapter 2 as he grew in the presence of the Lord. Now, back to Eli's boys, Principle of Interchange, verse 22. Now, Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Now, let's stop here a minute. Hmm. It's it's euphemistic language. Lay with the women. Do I need to explain what that means? These are the women. This was a typical thing that occurred. These were women who, at the gate of the tent of meeting, at the tabernacle, they they would serve the people. They may give them direction of where to take the animals, things like that. What are they doing? They're taking these women and treating them like Canaanite prostitutes. They're treating them like the Canaanites did, where women were used in ritual prostitution. That's how they're treating these women. Now, remember, these are the priests. These are Levites. These are at the top of the pecking order in terms of all Levitical priests at this time. These are the guys who are going to inherit what Eli has control of when he dies. We already learned he's an old man. And you just, wait a minute. They're stealing what belongs to God. They're treating what belongs to God with contempt. And now they're satisfying their sexual desires by women who are serving the Lord at the entrance of the tabernacle. These are the spiritual leaders of Israel. And he, Eli, said to them, his two boys, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil doings from all the people. No, my sons, it's no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. In other words, all Eli is saying what is obvious. Boys, all of the people of Israel, know what you're doing. And it's spreading like wildfire. Don't think you're hiding this. It's common knowledge, what you're doing with the sacrifices, what you're doing with these women. Verse 25, if someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was will of the Lord to put them to death. I wrote in my Bible right in the margin. The hardening of the human heart. Here you have these two priests. I mean, men, these guys would have studied. These guys would have studied the law in preparation for their position and responsibilities. These are men who would have known exactly what the Levitical priests were supposed to do. And they're abusing their office for self-centered ends taking the best of the sacrifices and taking women for sexual pleasure. Spiritual leaders, if they fall, affect the entire nation. That's what's at stake here. The Bible also states, as we just read in in, in that end of verse 25, the Lord has made his judicial decision. These two boys are going to die. And in a later chapter, I believe it's chapter four, we're going to see how they die.
1: Jim, uh, I have have a question for you. Uh, Going back to uh, verse 21, the Lord visited Hannah. Um, The mother of Jesus (laughs) was also visited. What would be the difference between that and verse 21? okay okay Fred
0: i'm not sure i'm understanding your question what okay. what is your other reference um the verse twenty one
1: um, the other reference was um god visited mary uh mother uh mother of jesus oh okay right
0: right okay gotcha
1: um, well
0: there there is Actually, and this is an original thought with me. In the Bible, there is a parallel between Hannah and a parallel between Mary, the mother of Jesus. Of course, in terms of visiting Mary, her pregnancy, the the sperm that impregnated her her egg, which resulted in Jesus, was from the Holy Spirit. The sperm that produced the children of Hannah came from Elkanah. So that, if, if I'm understanding your question... Fred, the difference is is the nature of the visitation by God on Mary versus the nature of the visitation of God on Hannah. There's nothing supernatural about the conception of Hannah's children. There was something supernatural about the conception of Mary's son, Jesus. And, of course, well, the miracle.
1: Yes. Yeah, okay. And thank you for explaining that. And then yeah. going on to verse uh, 21, back to that did did the did God have any influence in that sperm that went into the uterus of Hannah to create these um well these all the
0: Bible makes it very clear, and this is how we should understand it every conception of every human being in all of human history is a gift from God. life is a gift from God, Amen. so all conceptions no matter what the specific circumstances or, or, or you, however unique the sur- is a gift from God. So, I mean, all life is a gift. And that's why it would be correct for all of us to say, I have been created by God. That's what David's great meditation in Psalm 139 is all about. But the difference between that, and Mary's conceptions, of course, it's the Holy Spirit who provides the sperm that impregnates Mary's uh, egg and, and gives birth to Jesus and all of that. But I think the Bible wants, if I'm understanding your question or your comment, yeah. is that all life is a gift from God. Yeah. There has never been a conception that God isn't aware of and that God does not create, does not regard as precious.
1: Well, thank you. And then on 25, just a so, uh, Sum up here. If a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? And um, what is the answer to that? Would you say? Well, if someone sins again, who can intercede?
0: <laughs> if God doesn't provide an intercessor, which He will provide through Jesus, there is no hope for the human race.
1: So, at this time in Old Testament, was our intercessory? Uh, there was none. There was none? Oh, no, no, there no. was
0: none. But now, when I say it that way, I mean because of what happens 2,000 years later when Jesus shows up. The, the the need for intercessor, God will postpone providing that until Jesus comes. That's the sacrificial system. The sacrificial system, when you sin against God, the sacrificial system provides a means for you to be atoned for, for your sins to be covered—that's mm, okay. why God's system before Jesus is a temporary system. There is no final solving of the problem of the human heart and of human condition until Jesus once-for-all sacrifice. That's the language the Book of Hebrews used. So right. that it's—it's it's a profound statement to rhetorical questions that. That Eli is is framing for his two boys to consider, boys. You need to understand how serious what you're doing is. God had already made His decision of what was going to happen to these two boys. All right. All right. Thank. All right. Any other questions? You know, little simple ones. Fred has a three-part question. Takes me six minutes to answer, but that's all right. It gave me an opportunity to shift God's great gift. Verse 27. And there came a man of God to Eli. Now, take that little phrase. I only have seven minutes, but I'm going to try to do the best I can with this. That little phrase, the man of God, is a prophet. That is a little phrase you see a number of times before the major prophets, starting with Elijah and Elisha, show up. That's, they're the first, that's the 8th century B.C. That's coming up. So this is a man of God. This is a prophet. We don't know who he is. We don't know where he's from. We know any details. But God sends him and says, So this man has a word for Eli. This man has an oracle from God. It is important that Eli hear this. What does he say? Thus the Lord has said, So this man of God is now speaking for God. He is revealing an oracle from God to Eli. Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father? Now, you have to understand this in the context of the history of Israel. His father is Aaron. Eli is in that line of priests that starts with Aaron. So that's what he's saying. When they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh. Eli, you know the history of this. This all started when my people were in Israel, and I laid down this priestly framework through Aaron. He's your father. He's your ancestor. Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be a priest? And here we see the three key functions of the priest. To go up to my altar, to burn incense, and to wear an ephod before me. Now, the ephod was that apron, but it also contained something that I want to talk about a little later, which was so important for the high priest particularly. I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices, my offerings that I commanded? And honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people, Israel. Summarizing the heritage Eli has, starting with Aaron. Summarizing how your boys are abusing their role. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel. That's his covenant title. Yahweh, the Elohim of Israel. So, when this man of God uses that, set up a notice. This is an oracle from the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God of Israel. I promised that your house and the house of your father should go on, go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor those who despise me, shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. This is a covenant curse. Eli's priestly line ends. There will be no descendants of Eli, except one, I'll mention who that is in a minute, except one, that are going to serve the Lord. God is going to judge Eli and his wife through because of his son. He's going to cut him off. And I'll, I want to say more about this. I'm sort of running out of time, but I think we can get this done. Verse 32. Then in distress you will look with envious eyes on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel. There shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out to to grieve his heart and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. I'm trying to think of if I want to get into this. It is the line of Zadok, Z-A-D-O-K, that will survive. Zadok is going to now take over the responsibilities of the high priesthood and overseeing the priestly sacrifices. It ends with Eli. He's going to another priestly line coming from Aaron at Zadok. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, the line of Zadok, who shall do nothing to do according to what is in my heart and my mind. I will build him a sure house. He shall go in and out before my anointed forever. There's that anointed is Messiah forever. And everyone who's left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or beef of bread and say, please put me in one of the priest's places and I'm eat a morsel of bread. Fundamental change in the theocracy. Eli's line is going to be cursed. Verse 33, uh, verse 31 and verse 36. Eli's line is going to be converted. Is going to be cursed. And the priestly line that is now going to be established is the line of Zadok. We're going to learn more about him later. He will serve, he, Zadok, and his line will serve David. And this is really interesting. It will be the priests of the line of Zadok that will serve in the Millennial Temple. In Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48, where all that is detailed about the millennial temple. That temple that will set, be set up when Jesus comes sets up His rule, and there's worship on the Temple Mount, priest of Zadok. It tells us that in Ezekiel. So God is really blessing this line, as He takes away as a covenant curse the line of Eli. God is God is fundamentally changing who these guys are now because of Eli's abomination. Well, I really should say because of the sons of Eli's abominable actions, self-centered use of their position for their own end, God crosses them out, and these are the guys that are now going to be the faithful priests. And most of the high priests that come, the rest of the history of Israel are going to come from the line of Zadok, including the line that was served in the millennial Temple, that detailed force. Now, I want to make sure you understand this little chart, because the priests, there were two really important things. Because the priests were the key... In the theocracy of Israel, because they through the Ark of the Covenant, that is how God atoned for sin, and the priests administered all that. And God gave the law through Moses, and they were to teach the law. The priests and if the priestly line is corrupt, what does that say about the rest of the nation? The rest of the nation is affected by it. Leaders are always called to a higher standard in the Bible, and if leaders fail, everybody else is affected. And that's that's what's at stake here. Everything hangs on the priest being faithful to the Lord. And if they're not, everything else is affected. And so God is changing it. Okay, Eli, because of your boys, your line ends. You're going to see one survivor of the Eli line. His name is Abiathar. will be coming up. He, He is very faithful to David. Very loyal to David. We'll be reading about him a little bit later on. I have one minute and 32 seconds. Are you with me? You understand yep. what's just happened? The two horrific sins of Eli's boys. I don't think I need to review that again. And God, because of the hardness of their heart, God's judgment on them. But this man of God, this prophet, gives the oracle of God. Yahweh, the Elohim of Israel, has declared, your priestly line ends with you. And I'm going to replace you with another line who will be faithful to me, who will be loyal to me, and do what I want them to do. We did it. I really wanted to get through chapter 2, and I was afraid I wasn't going to do it. Did I push too fast and too hard, or you got it? No. All right. We got it.
1: I've been an angel in, in verse 27?
0: Possibly.
1: It, it, I mean, that's a pretty powerful
0: message. Well, right? yeah, but there are a number of these that you will see a number of these guys that show up and they are called a man of God. You don't know anything about them, yeah. it, and they give an oracle from God. I, I have tend to think, Fred, it is probably human being chosen by God, that it could have been an angel. All right, I'm going to pray and let you go, and we'll pick up with chapter three next week. Don't forget your assignment. <clears throat> you all forgot at the moment I said. Not, how many words? Two hundred, at a minimum. <laughs> Feel free to go beyond that. All right. Father, thank you for Hannah. Thank you for the opportunity. We study that remarkable woman. She had a deep understanding of you. She had a deep understanding of theology. She had a deep understanding of what you really are doing. And Lord, I thank you for someone like that. What what an extraordinary mother she must have been to Samuel. And really, her dad, Elkanah, her husband, Elkanah, his dad, also was a great man of God. So we thank you for those little tidbits of information we have about them. Uh, she really does magnify how the law was supposed to work, both the ceremonial law and the written law of God. What what a, what a wonderful woman. What a great role model she is. So we thank you for her. Thank you that she's in the Bible. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for inspiring the writer to include Hannah, in this text. And Lord, we also see how important leadership leadership is. Now, Eli's sons were horrible men, and their impact on the nation was dastardly. And you will judge them, and it will affect the nation. But you're raising up Samuel. And we see that constant contrast between Samuel and the two sons of Eli. We want to be like Samuel. We want to be men of faith, men who love you and serve you with our heart, our mind, and our strength. Help us to be the men of God you're calling us to be. We ask this in your son's precious name. Amen. Amen. See you next week.